On this electrifying episode of StarPod Log, we discuss the contents of StarLog magazine in issues 41 and 42 from 1980. Special guests on this episode include Tony Barletta and Rodney Rodas discuss the hero that saved every one of us, Flash Gordon. Matthew Kressel informs us what it is like to run a convention. Bert Bruce provides info on the UFO Chronicles. Comic Collector Geek gives us a history of the Platinum Age of science fiction comics. The Elvis Trooper, Ken Tarleton, tells us about the incredible hobby of patch collecting. Paul Mount shares insight on two actors who portray Doctor Who companions, Elizabeth Sladen and Ian Martyr. Billy Hogan helps us to appreciate the impact that Superman made on comics in the late 1930s. Plus, Neil Norman's Cosmic Orchestra. And more on this episode of... Star Pod Log. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, tally ho. Hey baby doll. Hey Putin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and retro pop culture. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, StarPod Trek. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine, or read it for free online at archive.org. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows? We might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to being attending professionals at the grandest event of them all, Dragon Con. The days are counting down, baby, to Dragon Con. Is there electricity in the air? Oh, yeah, I can feel it. What are you looking forward to? Doing more panels on the Trek track. We have actually multiple panels that we'll be handling. Two on the Trek track and two on the comic book track. More info will be following. So check us out on social media. We're going to be posting our schedule soon. And that's the fun thing is to share experiences with other like-minded fans. We always have a great time at Dragon Con. You you feel the car, the camaraderie in the air. You feel the spirit, and it's like, and everybody's just so energetic for the full weekend. It just never winds down. We'll be getting there on Wednesday, and we'll be leaving on Monday. So we are going to be there overtime, that you could say. So any of our listeners that wants to stop by and say hi to us, even while we're eating, like we always are, are part of group dinners as well. We definitely love to meet our listeners that we have right now and and future listeners so share the love definitely share this podcast with everyone that you know that has a passion for classic science fiction and fantasy starlog magazine issue number 41 
Cover date, December 1980. Log Entries, latest news in the worlds of science fiction and fact. Galactica wins the war. On August 22, 1980, a Los Angeles federal court judge ruled that Battlestar Galactica did not infringe on the copyright of Star Wars, ending a two-year court battle between MCA Universal and the 20th Century Fox over two intergalactic epics. Now look, we can say that there are similarities between the shows. We could say that obviously the success of Star Wars caused other properties to either do something more with what they had or create something new. But let's be real. Star Wars plagiarized so many things. Not only Flash Gordon serials, but Dune, other concepts that were prevalent in either movies, science fiction, books. Come on. That's kind of rude to start a lawsuit saying that Battlestar Galactica is nothing but a ripoff of Star Wars. Science fiction has has common elements, and so these shows that have space battles, well, of course, that's been around for a while, even before Star Wars. And, um, and of course, the thing is, Battlestar Galactica, you know it was created and came on TV at that time because of Star Wars. I mean, you can say Battlestar Galactica was inspired by Star Wars, but... But it was inspired by a lot of other science fiction, and so was Star Wars itself. So, yeah, I'm glad that um, that they won that battle. Who Invasion Continues That irrepressible Time Lord, known as Doctor Who, is invading colonial newsstands this fall as Marvel Comics unleashes four issues of Marvel Premiere featuring the adventures of everybody's favorite Gallifreyan. It marks Doctor Who's return to American comics after an absence of almost 13 years. Gold Key Comics published a tie-in special with the Doctor Who and the Daleks back in 1967. We know by this point, Doctor Who was creating a buzz in the United States because it was finally being shown on PBS. And so Whovians in the U.S. were clamoring for more Doctor Who. And Marvel has a good history of tapping into um, the, these TV shows and movies and bringing them out in comic book form. Just a man with mad courage, you know.
Hello and welcome. My name is Tony Barletta. I have uh, been a contributor on Star Podlog on Comics Talk once in a while. Uh, I am the Dragon Con uh, programming director of the Comics Track, so I put all the comic book panels together for Dragon Con here in Atlanta, Georgia. And it's great to be back here on Star, Star Podlog talking about a favorite subject of mine, the Flash Gordon movie. Joining me today is my friend Rodney Rodas. Rodney, introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Rodney Rodas. I am a big comic book fan and owner publisher of Basilio Publishing, a comic book company that I run. Uh, yeah, huge fan of Flash Gordon. One of the first films to like burn into my mind at a young age. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So the article from the uh, magazine that we're talking about was a particular interview with Sam Jones about his first uh, big role, and that was in Flash Gordon. Uh, he talked about how he won the role uh, by uh, Dino De Laurentiis' family seeing him on the dating game of all places. That's really strange. Uh, but that that's what won him the role, and that they dyed his hair blonde, which is a great choice because I can't imagine Flash Gordon without blonde hair. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Buster Crabbe pretty much visually was, you know, Flash Gordon for years. And so you you couldn't get around that, you know. And then to to have Sam Jones come in and now, like, be reimagined as Flash Gordon for a modern time, you know, then, which is, what, 1980, 81, is, you know, was great. Uh, you know, it, it was you know, in my opinion, successful compared to uh, what could have been. Yeah, he talked in the article, too, about um, getting meeting Buster Crab and that he'd wish that they could have had Buster Crab as Flash's father, which would have been really cool. So, I mean, it, it also, too, the article states uh, an interesting thing is that Sam Jones uh, said he would do his own stunts because – they had stunt people for him, but he wanted it to look authentic, and he did his own stunts. So that was him on that platform with the whip. You know, that was him with the tree. That was him going through the jungle and the quicksand. Um, I think that was – he did a great job in all those action scenes for sure. Oh, totally. The pla the platform scene with uh, the Hawkman uh, footing against Baron is probably the, one of the most terror-gripping scenes on the movie, because you're just like, I don't know what's going to happen. There's spikes, there's, you know, it's tilting back and forth there. Hundreds it, it of really miles from anything. Yeah, it really is. Um, he did say in the in the article, too, how it took them weeks just to film, you know, what looked like a few minutes on screen, so it must have taken forever to to film that entire scene, and the, t the two of them were actually hitting each other with whips. Uh, oh, really? And, I, that I did not know. Yeah, um, but I guess they, you know, they, of course it was fake blood and all, but um, mm -hmm. they, they were actually going at, after each other on, on that platform. You know, it, there, there's something about constructing an action scene. Like you said, I mean, it's tilting and it's swirling and you got the spikes, you got the blood, you got the whips, you got, and, and something that's like in so many scenes, you got the beautiful painted sky you can see that sky so you know if they fall off they're going down uh, it is a product of its time but mm -hmm. but yet it you know it, you can see how it borrowed some from movies that have come before influenced from 
from some of the Superman films, from some sci-fi films of the era. But, you know, like you said, the set design, I mean, when you look at Ming's chamber and you look at the design of it and the costumes, so very unique. Um, all those races of, of aliens, all all with different costumes and gold on their head. And, um, there's something unsettling in the uniqueness at the same time that made it so gripping you couldn't turn away. I mean, there's, there's some of those people were wearing like gold masks that almost looked like they were crying. It was, it was unsettling but cool at the same time. I don't know how much uh, Lorenzo Simple Jr. Uh, put into the script in terms of how he wanted certain things designed. Right, and Lorenzo Semple Jr. is, is other, just to reference that he wrote a lot for the Batman TV show, just so everybody knows who we're talking about. Yes, and and that's why, you know, you can see the influence of that kind of design in Flash Gordon. Uh, Max von Saud is amazing as me. Absolutely. Uh, Phenomenal the, actor, yeah. The, the design, getting back to the comics, you know, Ming the Merciless was a racial stereotype. Uh, mm-hmm. he, you know, he was one of the, the evil Asians that uh, was propagated in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. You know, they, he kind of fell to the wayside in terms of the way they designed. They wanted to make him more alien, yada, yada, yada. But with this, it, it was like this very Eastern European uh, look to him. Yeah. And it was just like, oh, he just, you know, he, he looks like this kind of blend of different ethnicities all into one. True, and, true. And it's like, they just, again, with the design, just, just perfect. I think they picked the perfect actors for each of those roles, really. I mean, you look at Timothy Dalton as Baron. Um, oh, totally. Swashbuckling here. Oh, yes. Yeah. And you look at the the larger-than-life Brian Blessed. I mean, no one else could bring Voltan to life like Brian Blessed. And um, he is such a great cast. Yes, he's, you know, he really, like, embodies the Hawkman. You know, he's just like laughing and you know having fun at the same time. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, well, I, I love that like, scene in the throne room where he's poking people with his sword and trying to act like. <laughs> yes, and he, he clubs one of the one of the one of Ming's henchmen. Yeah, anybody else would have failed in that role, but Brian Blast again, his performance rivals Vince out. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and Topol. I have no idea who Topol is or what he's done, but that guy was was uh, hands Zarkov for sure. They're incredibly accomplished actors. Yeah, obviously. You know, some of the other ones, he, you know, there's like, oh, they were a really big actor in like Italy. You know, they they didn't really have like a mainstream uh, U.S. Right. presence, but they like, were uh, like the daughter. Um, yes, uh, like his daughter was a big actor over yeah, actor overseas. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, she, you know, she was... Ornella Mutai. Yeah, she was great. You know, like, just playing that conniving daughter, very flirty, very, you know, seductive. Um, She knew how to play the part. Right. Her introduction scene. She was wearing this kind of very Deja Thoris-esque outfit. That's an analogy. 
Yeah. You know, she, she, sure. you know, it's a gold, so it's like very, uh, you know, the fabric is very thin and, and scantily. You know, it, it shows off like not just sexy, not just seductive, but you know that she's up to something. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and that's the, the best way she, you know, she, she's conniving just like her father, but she, she's right. very, um, she's not as overt, uh, very, you know, for lack of a better phrase, sensual about it. Right. Uh, I mean, so the article um, shows a lot of, you know, Sam Jones, how he was picked for the part and how he contributed to the movie and his thoughts on, you know, his first big role in Hollywood. So uh, how do you think Sam Jones did as Flash? Okay, th- this is a weird question to answer because – Sam Jones performed as Flash on screen. Right. But the voice of Sam Jones was dubbed over. That's true. Yeah, it is weird. I didn't realize it until so many years later, yeah. Yeah, same here. I always thought that was, you know, Sam Jones' actual voice, and then I found out it, it was dubbed, and then I finally heard Sam Jones' real voice, and... Flash's voice is very mid-range, slightly on the higher side, and you know, Sam Jones is very, very hoarse and gravelly, and hmm. you know, yeah. I think it was a better choice to have that dubbed. I think physically, Sam Jones looked the part perfectly. He's oh yes, he's I the agree. heroic, heroic-looking jock. He's the guy next door at the same time, and I think. I think he embodied a quality. I was thinking about this when I was getting ready to record it. I mean, there's a quality Sam Jones portrays you can that makes him so likable, and it, it's that's earnest. that's the key to Flash because he's a genuine human being. He's honest, and people like him. And when you see Sam Jones on the screen, you feel that, and that's how he makes friends with all these people that try to kill him, which is what Flash Gordon does. Yeah, and and that's the thing, like. Sam Jones as Flash has this earnestness uh, about him. You know, yeah. every time he's put in the face of danger, he's just like, I'm going to get through this. You know, Flash Gordon gets knocked out a bunch of times during the film. You know, that's true. He gets that, he gets that, that mallet to the face. He gets, you know, gassed to death. He gets, yeah. you know, on top of that, he's also a football player. And right. The whole thing, the whole time I'm thinking, about, ever... like, <laughs> am I am I going to hell? Because like I'm thinking, like, oh man, he's gonna get concussed and he's gonna be like really punchy when he gets older. <laughs> Maybe when Ming offers Flash Gordon a planet of his own, you know, That's an excellent well, thing. Yeah, yeah. Flash looks at Ming and just like. No, that is not how we do things. I I will not subjugate others. That that right. is wrong, and it's a very black and white. Yeah, uh, and it's, it's no like, well, judgment yeah. form. Yeah, and it's like, well, you're going into the ether, and it's like, I- I'll find a way, and then he off he goes. It's yeah. like, no, I'll find a way. <laughs> and off he goes, and he finds a way. That's who he is. That's that's what makes him so awesome. Mhm. Yeah, and then even the even Flash's outfits, you know, it's like they're they're very like 
again, like this weird Eastern European. Yeah, the pilot uh, outfit. Yeah. 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 And that's a, I love the tank top too. I mean, at some point he just decides to wear a tank top. Yes. You, you know what? Here's one thing. Like, again, it didn't dawn on me until I saw it this morning. So Flash is wearing a shirt that has <laughs> Flash on it. And it has a has a lightning bolt on the back. And the thing is, it's like, you know, talk about great self-promotion. Right. You know, you know like, it's like <laughs> the... He's not going to forget members, who he is. <laughs> all the band members wearing the band shirt as they perform. The band shirt as they perform. You know? Right. Like, right. It's, it's, it's just that kind of... I'm the quarterback for the Jets, and I'm wearing a shirt with my name on it. <laughs> yeah. And, like, that's, it's like this weird, it, again, but it, it's like this shameless self-promotion, but it's like this earnestness behind yeah. it. It's like, I'm Flash. See? You're like, oh, wow. This is... That, that is yeah. true. I never, I never once thought about that, but it is true. It, when you, you have him, Holding his own on the screen against Timothy Dalton. Timothy Dalton is, you know, he's a great actor. You know, he, you know, how he plays Baron is is very Shakespearean in a way for me. You know, right. Uh, right. And he, he again, he also has this presence about him. But you know, he he's Baron is a very cynical guy. You know, even when like even with a uh, aura, he's just kind of like, I know you're gonna betray me. I know you're gonna you're gonna fuck around behind my back. You're gonna do something, <laughs> you know. Right. And he's very skeptical. He's very skeptical of Flash, you know, because he's thinking like, oh, this guy is eventually gonna turn on me. I don't know how, don't know when, but you know. So I got to take care of this shit because I know what I am doing is trying to keep my people. You know, he doesn't see Flash as a threat. Uh, sure, when you when you look at the citizens him. of when you look at the citizens of Mongo under the uh, the rule of Ming, the dictator has transformed each of those the the people of each of those planets and moons into being scared, into being cynical, into being yeah, afraid, they're, they're subjugated, and. And until Flash comes and enters their their sphere of influence, um, he can he can change them and he can show them there's a better way. And that's what uh, Baron says it on the platform. There's a better way than Ming's law because he finally realized it. Yes, you know some other. So so, so in, in closing, uh, just wanted to mention that um, the last scene um, where where it was pr- totally improv, where Sam Jones jumps up and says, "Have a nice day," and that was a great touch oh. too. Yes, you know, and, and that teaser at the end with uh, a gloved hand picking up Ming's ring, you know, yeah. it's just like, who who's grabbing that ring? You know, it's a gloved hand, <laughs> yeah. it's male or female, you know, yeah. and it's sad that we never got a sequel. I agree. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank you so much for joining me today, Rodney, and thank Log for having us. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to why we feel Flash Gordon is one of our favorite movies of all time. This is PBS, the public broadcasting service.
He's been shuttling through time and space for 14 years, solving problems and vanquishing monsters. He was born with two hearts and a body temperature of only 60 degrees. He's the astounding Doctor Who. Become part of his fantastic adventures. Join Doctor Who this Saturday at 10.30 p.m. Good morning, good evening, wherever you may be. My name is Matthew Kressel, and chances are you probably know me from the Doctor Who in two segments I've done as part of Starpod Log in the past. You may not know that from 2012 through 2018, I was involved with Concasturberus, the North Alabama Doctor Who convention, first as a volunteer and then from 2014 through 2018 as a con chair helping organize that. In that capacity, I recently read an article from Starlog Magazine issue 41 called Running a Con for Fun and Break Even. But what can a 40-year-old article teach you about running a convention? Surprisingly, quite a bit. Written by the legendary B. Joe Trimble, it's incredible to see how much of the article is pertinent to running a con today. In particular, how she opens with something of a warning that undertaking and running an event is going to be a source of stress, financial, emotional, and even on relationships and friendships. With the years I was involved with Con K, as we called it, I can't tell you how much truth there is to that, as well as keeping an eye out for what Trimble rightly terms expensive mistakes. What would those be, you might ask? Keep an eye on your hotel contract for the venue for the convention, and remember that hotels are there to rent rooms to people attending your event. Something else the article touches upon, albeit briefly, is the need for communication between the convention staff and the hotel staff, hopefully getting everyone on the same page. Those things could help your convention run smoothly for attendees and big-name guests alike. Ah, guests. One of those expensive mistakes, Trimble mentions, are con chairs overreaching in their first year, and even afterwards, to bring multiple big-name guests to their convention. After all, who wouldn't want one of the big stars of your favorite TV show or movie franchise at your event? Or, you'd think would be even better, multiple big names. While doing so is neat and definitely good for one's ego, it does add up. There are many reasons why many cons don't make it beyond year one. An overstretching on guests is one of them. As the article talks about, and I learned both from Con K and attending other conventions, there's also a lot of value in bringing people who aren't big names, well, not big names yet in some cases, but who have something interesting to bring to being a guest. True, egos can flare up whatever rank your guest may be on the proverbial stardom totem pole, but having guests you can afford but will still bring people to your event is an essential part of running a successful convention, in my view. Somewhere else where Tremble's article remains both relevant but also slightly out of date is in terms of publicity. Perhaps the biggest change in the last four decades has been the rise of the Internet. Indeed, without it, you wouldn't be listening to me right now. But having search engines, websites, and social media has changed how conventions promote themselves. In theory, you can reach out directly to potential attendees through the right keywords on a Google search. Notice that I said in theory there. Even now, local advertising remains a big part of promoting a convention. Indeed, I first learned of Con K through a flyer someone put up at the high school my brother was attending in the lead-up to its first year. Putting flyers in gas stations or store windows, 
finding bulletin boards to pin them on, or leaving a stack on someone's store counter was a major driver of people learning of Con K. Multiple years, we were also lucky enough to get TV news coverage ahead of and during the convention itself. Plus, for a couple of other years, we even took out radio ads and made appearances on local radio to give away passes. All of these, coupled with the internet and social media, are great ways to get the word out. Yet, to this day, I still meet people who spot me wearing a Doctor Who t-shirt or a mask in this age of COVID, who, when I mention Conkay, are still surprised they never knew Huntsville had its own Doctor Who convention. Publicity, it seems, only goes so far. Trimble leaves her best and most timeless advice for the article's conclusion. Know your location, know your potential attendance. A con in a small or medium-sized city isn't going to be Dragon Con or San Diego Comic Con. Letting not only your attendees but yourself know that is important. You'll keep from disappointing those giving you their hard-earned money, and the burden on you won't mean taking out a second mortgage or having someone bail you out financially. You might even be fortunate enough to have that all-important bit of running a convention when it's over with, seed money. So what's changed in the last few decades? Contacting potential guests, for one thing. The internet has made it easier to find agents for actors and others involved in pop culture, either through agents' website listings or through sites that collect fan mail mailing addresses, which often goes through agents anyways. Also, as you might expect, things have gotten more expensive. In just the first couple of years of running a Con K, as Doctor Who's popularity here in the U.S. took off, we watched as appearance fees for potential guests sometimes doubled, tripled, or even quadrupled. Today, guests can cost you anything from a few thousand dollars to tens of thousands of dollars, or in the case of a big-name guest, even hundreds of thousands of dollars. Hence, the advice on not cramming in so many big-name guests and knowing what your attendance is going to be. In the final analysis, running a convention isn't easy. There were times when my thoughts about Con K were that it was a giant ball of stress. Yet, it also afforded me some of my most rewarding experiences with fandom, from interviewing three doctors on stage to using my contacts in the local drama community to do a staged reading of a missing 1960s Doctor Who serial. It isn't for the faint of heart, though. Indeed, it's perhaps more like a NASA space mission. Lots of planning, things tried and tossed around or thrown out entirely, massive amounts of preparation and scheduling, a slow rise off the launch pad on the day of, course corrections and crises while it's happening, and finally, and hopefully, feeling the satisfaction of having put something on that the majority of people enjoyed. I leave the final word and piece of advice to Con K founder Bonnie Otten, who also ran anime conventions in Huntsville before founding Con K. When asked by those attending what running a convention was like, she had this simple answer and piece of advice for anyone who wanted to do it themselves. Set the seat of your pants on fire and run. That's about the only way you can run a con for fun and, hopefully, break even. I hope you've enjoyed this look at convention running past and present. If you want to know more about me or my writing, including my Sidewise award-winning alternate history fiction, please follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Kressel Writes. That's K-R-E-S-A-L-W-R-I-T-E-S. And on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Kressel Writes. 
Gathering together from across the galaxy, or at least portions of the United States, three men form a triangle of useless knowledge. He knows what secrets lie in the hearts of men. Max Overnighter! Don't make him angry. You wouldn't like him when he's angry. Lou Melagrana! And if you want to make him angry, go to MyMegolike.com. Curator of Dr. Durant's Sanctum on YouTube. Rich Hurley! Friend or foe to the Elder Gods. Either way, they want him off their sofa! Hello, my fellow Starlog uh, aficionados on Starpod Log. My name is Bruce Bertner. A little bit of an introduction. I was born some almost 60 years ago to the day in a little place called Gary, Indiana. And much like a farm boy, I lived in Morgan Township during my uh, growing up years. And Starlog was the only thing that kept me sane and sober during those years. My father was also a science fiction aficionado. was very excited when Star Trek first appeared. When Star Trek first appeared, I was like a five-year-old boy. And I sat there on my father's lap, and we loved Spock. And his nickname for me was Little Spock because my ears kind of pointed. True fact. But anyway, I'm Bruce Burt, the machine, Burtner. But we're going to talk about the UFO Chronicles, A View from the Other Side, by William Millman, and why it's relevant today. Well, of course, this is the year 2022. It's July. And we found out in a big way through podcasters such as Joe Rogan with the Joe Rogan Experience and many other podcasts, too numerous to mention, uh, that the government have finally, our USA government has decided to uh, reveal the fact that, yes, they do have evidence of unidentified flying objects or UAPs, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, this article in some ways is kind of prescient for what happened uh, 40 years in the future. And I'll quote some of the uh, pieces from the article here in a moment. But uh, it was apparently going to be like a NBC television show. The other one during the course of that time that I remember watching as a kid on NBC was Project Blue Book, where they went and they would try to, uh, the FBI or whoever would go out and try to uh, find out the origins of what UFOs were. And uh, the special effects were... Of that time, they were good, but obviously they'd look kind of naive by today's standards. But anyway, UFO Chronicles, a view from the other side, uh, a guy named Friedman was the producer, and he had high hopes for it. He wanted to, uh, well, first off, they were feeding off of the, if uh, you were of that age group in that time, Close Encounters of the third uh, Third Kind, I should say, came out in 1977, and it was a huge success. Not as huge as Star Wars, but pretty big. Anyway, uh, that's one of the few times I saw my father get excited and we went and witnessed it at the movie theaters. It was a, a good movie. And, of course, Richard Dreyfus did a very good job playing in Everyman. The other reason it was kind of significant, it took place in Indiana. Anyway, so you've got Close Encounters of the Third Kind and some other, uh, you know, what would come afterwards, some other UFO-related uh, material. But, uh, oh, also... You had Eric Von Donneken and the Chariots of the Gods, and that was phenomenal. I mean, that book, the books that Von Donneken wrote in the 70s were just, for a kid my age, it just blew your mind. And he is, those facts are still relevant today. But UFO Chronicles, I think what they'd hoped to do was to uh, feed off the success of Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Star Trek, of course, and uh, Star Wars and all the uh, you know science fiction-related or speculative fiction-related material. So uh, the cinematographer 
was a special effects whiz named Jim Mandrala. What they did was they uh, rented from Disney a little studio and they had a bell-shaped saucer section and they put a blue screen mat behind it to uh, get pictures of these very primitive-looking aliens. It's got your big-head aliens, you know, two guys in what look like uh, generic spacesuits, but uh, Friedman had high hopes. I'm going to quote a couple of things from uh, the article itself. Why Chronicles? Soon we will be going to the stars, says Friedman, and it behooves anyone out there to keep an eye on anyone down here about to break the bonds of Earth's gravity, not to take into effect what already been to the moon. After all, we are a relatively primitive culture, and it makes sense that other more advanced cultures would want to protect their own interest, a sort of cop-on-the-beat type of approach. That's how he approached his uh, episodic, uh, episodic show. He says, uh, although the aliens will appear somewhat like the visitors from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, they will not be quite so outgoing and friendly. And trust me, these things don't look quite as good as the Close Encounter aliens. Go grab an issue and take a look. They're more neutral creatures, both men agree, more logical in their makeup on the other order of Spock from Star Trek. They'll have a lot of trouble with our world, trying to understand us as a race. It'll be a source of mystery and amazement to them that we can operate on the basis of such emotion and self-interest. And they are not opposed to defending themselves if necessary. Their decisions will be based on the logic of the moment, on their own survival. Now, Friedman goes on to say, From my own studies, I believe that robot-type vehicles came here first to the Earth, and such unmanned craft continued reconnaissance flights until World War II when the exponential growth of human technology brought the aliens themselves. Over the years, spacecraft have crashed, there have been confrontations with Earthcraft, etc., and the aliens in Chronicles will discuss all of that. They'll be from Zeta-1 Reticuli, as were the aliens from the Betty and Barney Hill case, and they will compare the parallels between the development of Earth and other planets in the universe. Now, uh, it's a new perspective, that, that section. Apparently, he says, by breaking open this cosmic water gate, we hope to stimulate people to think much like War of the Worlds did decades ago. We want to point out the lack of global communication and cooperation on this planet and our failure to use space for peaceful purposes. We'll try to make people understand that every major government on this planet has evidence of extraterrestrial visitors, but each hoards its information to ensure that they don't accidentally give a critical piece of data to a competitor or data who could then use it to dominate or destroy. All this can be preachy or pedantic, and it must have a sense of humor. For instance, can you imagine an alien landing saying, take me to your leader? As a race, we don't have a leader, just hundreds of nationalistic pretenders. Man must grow sociologically and technologically before he is ready to take to the stars. It is extremely short-sighted and dangerous to to develop technology to destroy instead of to foster peaceful coexistence. Hello, Friedman. Have you been to America? We must begin to promote global cooperation on this planet. Hopefully, Chronicles can help achieve that goal and be damn entertaining at the same time. It's a tall order, yet one of the producers thinks it's attainable. So that's the story of the UFO Chronicles. I don't quite remember. I'm sure I watched it, and I'm sure it was on one of the network shows, and I'm sure you can find it now on YouTube if if you try. Do you like scary movies? What about science fiction and cult films? Then please visit Shocking Things. 
you can search for us on your favorite podcatcher. You can also go to anchor.fm slash shocking things for the main hub for the links to episodes and our social media. Now try and enjoy the daylight. Shocking things. Starlog interview with Flash Gordon's Melody Anderson. Now, you're always a fan of Melody Anderson from the first moment you saw her in Flash Gordon because this was her debut role. I loved her in the movie. She was, I mean, she's very beautiful, that's obvious. But her character was it was a very strong character in the movie. She she didn't mind uh, defying Ming, and she, she just stood out as as one of those uh, great female you know, almost superheroes. I mean, she was more than just a sidekick to Flash. And and I think she's underrated as such, because anytime you think of leading ladies in the world of science fiction, superheroes, fantasy, her name rarely comes up. But especially with this interview, you realize that how much she added to the movie. And this was her debut role. It even relates that after coming off the plane, that she didn't even have time to fix herself up, like... She was she was on the gun running. De Laurentiis was on a, a tight schedule, and he wanted things moving fast. Yeah, she barely had time to get acclimated. She was just she even got the part very suddenly, and um, and she never really became famous afterwards. I mean, she did that TV show Manimal, mm-hmm. which some people love, but it only lasted one season. We're talking to you, Joe Crow. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, I liked the show too. I mean, I was disappointed it only lasted a few episodes, but um, but I've seen Melody Anderson several times at cons, and she she seems like a lovely person. She's she's great with the fans. It is so true, and she tried to do as many stunts as she possibly could in the movie, and she look. This is an era where one of the reasons why we love classic science fiction movies and TV shows. Because they were more director-driven, and the directors were allowing some feedback from the cast. We look at the classic scene of Flash Gordon playing football with those like green eggs. It was Melody that impromptu became a cheerleader, because she relates that in her mind, that was her role. If Flash was a football player, she had to cheer him on. That was not in the script. Like, How cool is that to embrace the character? Yeah, that was awesome. Um, her, her saying, go Flash, go. Yeah. I mean, I left that in the movie. And, and it was great to read this interview and find out that she was the one who came up with that, de- that idea. And even, and her and Sam Jones came up with the idea of him playing football. Because, How was that not in the script? Right, because he's supposed <laughs> to be a football player. Yeah. And that phrase, that iconic phrase, go Flash, go. When you see her at conventions, people chant that. To, to know that she was the one that came up with that just makes her more awesome. And, and then remember, she she said it again at the end of the movie, too, yes. right, right before that big crash and everything. Mm-hmm. And also she relates that there were certain scenes that she put herself in the mind of the character. Like when she had to run back to grab her shoes, she thought to herself, yeah, this isn't in the script, but boy, these shoes are beautiful. I'm not going to just leave these be. <laughs> and they left that in there. Like, these are actual character-building moments that made her a real person. And I think that's one of the great things about the Flash Gordon movie in general. Oftentimes, it 
falls under the classification of a superhero movie. It, Flash Gordon himself is considered a superhero. But there's nothing super heroic uh, as, as far as being beyond uh, the, the realms of what a man can do. You know, he can't fly. He doesn't have heat vision or anything. He doesn't even have a utility belt. But both of these characters do d- display superheroics in their own ways. And I can't imagine anybody else in the role because what she created became iconic within time. Flash and Dale were both human beings. They were not mutants or anything. And, yeah, so they, they come on into this movie and and think that they can do what needs to be done to turn around the, the world of Mongo, which is... You know, which is so cool. You're watching the movie and you think, yeah, they can do it. You know, you, you cheer them on. And, and Dale was just such a great part of that. And she also relates that she tried to play the part straight and did not want to make it campy. She took the role seriously. When I was growing up watching this movie, I knew that Batman was campy. I never viewed this movie as campy. I viewed it as over the top, extremely bright. But never that it was corny. I mean, how about you? Uh, no, I didn't think it was campy either. I mean, I mean, but I guess as kids, you you don't recognize it as much. But I remember reading a review of it. Well, well, the re- and a reviewer was saying that the movie couldn't quite decide if it wanted to be campy or serious, and maybe that that's part of the charm um, because the actors played it seriously. But it, it was just so over the top with the visual effects and everything and the, you know, the colors and the costumes that I, th- I think those are the reasons why people want to say it's campy. It, 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 it's so different from real world. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the color of the sky and everything. But it was just, I thought it was just beautifully done, really. Absolutely fantastic. And when you think about how George Lucas originally wanted to create Flash Gordon, but he couldn't get the rights to it, so he made his own Flash Gordon serials. That would be Star Wars. This purposely tried to distance itself from Star Wars. It didn't want to look like a Star Wars clone. And I'm glad that it did, because what it created was a a magical moment. Uh, It was designed to have a sequel, a series of sequels. But unfortunately, we never got that. What do you think would happen if we did get a sequel? Do you think it would be more on the public consciousness now as opposed to just being a cult classic one-shot deal for classic sci-fi fans? I think it could have been even bigger. I mean, if they did it right, you know, I mean, of course, a a sequel could have flopped. But, I mean, but if they had done it right, it could have been great as a sequel. But, but, you know, but I think nowadays having the one movie and we cherish the one movie, so it's great as it is. It's interesting that Universal did not back it much in the United States, but they did back it heavily in Europe, New Zealand, and Australia. And in fact, in France, they lined the Champs-Élysées Boulevard with massive promotional material for the movie. And just coming back from Paris, if we have nothing like this in America, but it's this massive, massive huge street, hugely wide street and long street that where they have ginormous parades. They're, the archway is so big that you could fly a biplane through it. And I couldn't, I searched as much as I could to find what the promotional material was like for Flash Gordon during that time period in 1980, but I couldn't find anything. 
I know that when we went recently, they were promoting Stranger Things, and they had a Stranger Things store there. And it was people were lined up outside on the street trying to get into the store. So it's interesting to think that other countries were embracing this movie more than we did in the United States because in America, we just didn't get the marketing blitz that others did. What I remember was seeing the commercials for it, and, I mean, that's how I knew about the movie, and reading Starlog, of course, and I thought it looked great. I mean, I wanted to see it, but, yeah, I don't know how popular it really was when, like, around other people, I don't think anyone else really was into it as much as I was. Yeah, and because of the legal rights, they couldn't do the merchandising the way that other movies were doing it. Because there was a, there was already a filmation cartoon series, so we never got Flash Gordon action figures or anything of that sort that were based on the movie, uh, which is a total shame. Another thing was she had so many costumes in the movie. What, weren't they just so glamorous and, you know, I she mean, talks the, about how heavy they were. She talked about that, yeah, that, that wedding dress that was black, it was all black and had all the beads on it and she said it was 50 pounds. I mean, amazing she could walk in it. But, but, you know. At work, I carry things that are 40 pounds. And, I mean, there's, but, you know, you feel it after a while. (laughs) You really do feel something like that. I mean, wearing something like that with her frame, that's unbelievable. Yeah, with, with a dress, the weight is distributed differently. So I guess that, that that's part of, of how she could do it. It's still going to hurt your back though. Yeah, yeah, it probably 40 pounds of anything, you're going to feel it after a period of time. And she said the, the 40 pounds were because of, it was all beads. Yeah, which is neat. And part of her her headdress too, that was beads and whatever was, was on that, that it was, the whole thing was neat looking. And another thing I like was the fact that she had a black wedding dress. Because we, we think of it as, you know, brides now, I mean, you know, brides always wear a white for, for their wedding dress. She's marrying Ming. Yeah, so, and it, so it symbolized something, right? It was almost like her death. So, so for her, she, she wore black, but it, it must have been the custom there, like that, like whoever marries the emperor. Yeah, they did say that he had other wives that he killed. So, yeah, so to marry the emperor, they, they must always have to wear black. And the funny thing is, the direction was for her and aura to fight in the bed but melody spoke up and said look girls don't fist fight we'll just have a pillow fight because that's how girls fight and you know what it worked i think it worked better because it just it added a certain realm of not only realism but a little titillation there okay if you want to say that (laughs) (laughs) yeah i can see it because you you didn't you didn't think of dale arden as being the kind of person to to fist fight, even though she could, if it if it wasn't on the bed, if it was standing, then she would have. You know, that was another thing in this article, though. Did you see that picture where where it said um, Dale Arden takes lashes from a jealous princess Aura? But that that was the wrong caption. Dale Arden wasn't in that picture. That was Princess Aura being whipped by General Kala. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we know the magazine comes out. They they get these pictures months before the movie. And so we are finding some flaws looking over the the back issues of Starlog. Some of the things they they kind of got wrong, but it's actually humorous looking back at it now. It is. It's just it's just something that you that you notice. <laughs> uh, but another thing about the memorabilia, I of course we had the album by Queen, mm-hmm. so that was that was the best thing to buy from this movie back then was was the album. The soundtrack was just so awesome. I just listened to it all the time. 
the um you know the the banging music of Queen j- just fit the movie so well. And her voice in there that was interspersed because they put lines in the movie. In my brain right now, when I think of the songs from the movie and and listening to the soundtrack when I was a kid, I still, in my mind, hear her voice as part of the song because of that soundtrack. Yeah, the soundtrack was a, a great way to relive the movie because it had all those lines from the movie. We didn't have VCRs back then. Right. All, all you had was that, that record album. It was cool. When we reflect on Melody Anderson's part in the movie, have nothing but praise for her. This is uh, Comic Collector Geek. I'm basically going to be reviewing um, a very interesting article written by Ron Goulard in uh, Starlog magazine. I love to do these comic-related shows where there's sort of a mixture between comics and sci-fi. And this is the case with this article, where it looks at Platinum Age cartoon strips. So... Just to give you a quick rundown, Platinum Age is the time before Superman. So Superman really started the age of comics, and that's considered the Golden Age. This is looking at the Platinum Age. And a lot of the Platinum Age comics were really just reprints of comic strips that were published in the newspapers. And some of the earliest newspapers that were discussed in this article by Ron Goulard are kind of interesting because they do have these sci-fi elements. And he looked at, he didn't, there was like hundreds of strips that you could look at, but he looked at a few of them and he really explained how these uh, strips had kind of a very, very major influence on sci-fi and led to future comics being developed. And the first strip that he looked at was a strip called Little Nemo by um, McCoy, I believe his name is. And basically, it's kind of a cute little strip. Um, it's about a boy who, when he goes to sleep, he goes into his imagination and he goes into a different world. And sometimes there's actually a strip where the boy is kind of, uh, he imagines himself as a giant and he's walking amongst the buildings and he does like almost the King Kong thing where he climbs, climbs up the buildings and stuff. You know, this is, this is written in like, uh, uh, 1907. So, so it's kind of interesting that this is even predating, uh, the King Kong movie. So it's interesting to see these early comic strips. And he was discussing how the Little Nemo strip was one of the first strips and it really originated in 1905. Uh, it was one of the first strips to really feature sci-fi elements. And one of the things that he would do is he would have these kind of cool little inventions that he built. Like he built like a robotic kangaroo, for example. Or uh, he had like these different, like a snowmobile and different inventions that he would create. And, um, you know, usually at the end of the strip, he was either woken up by his parents or, this, <laughs> or the, the machine that he invented would kind of fall apart and have some kind of weird quirky disaster, these creative kind of like land of the imagination. And one of the things that allowed the the writer to do is to take little Nemo and bring him into like a sci-fi world where, where he could explore, he would go off in his little Zeppelin and he would fly off to the moon or fly off to Saturn or Mars and he would have like these little adventures. 
so you know it was bringing um, a lot of these strips were written towards young children, but he would teach them about sci-fi, and it was a very interesting kind of uh, way a perspective because it it really does open people's imagination and. Uh, that's one great thing, thing about science fiction in general, that really it's up to one's imagination where it can go. And by placing it in the land of dreams, you can really, you know, you open, there's no, there's no boundaries to what you can do. And that's what was very interesting about this strip, that it really opened the, the gates in terms of what his creative vision can go with, in terms of the, the science fiction adventures this boy would go on. And the interesting thing was, um, McCoy, when he wrote this strip, he's really basing it on his son as the main, the main antagonist, uh, or protagonist, I should say. His son was like kind of the, the role model for the character of Little Nemo. And another strip that he kind of spoke about, uh, and I'm not going to speak about all the things that he talked about in this, uh, article, but another one that he talked about was, um, the, one of the first uses of a robot in uh, these strips. And it was before even the term robot had been even coined. Just as an aside, uh, the term robot was first used in a play, uh, like a Czech language play called R.U.R. in 1920. So the term robot didn't exist before 1920. It just wasn't used. And they basically used this term... And it was so, uh, it was like Slovak, uh, 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 term for roba, robata, uh, which means servitude or, or forced labor. So these robots are kind of like servants. <laughs> so, so that was the way it was in the play. So I just think it's kind of interesting that they have this. Uh, so in the, in the comics though, this is several years earlier. We have this first robot, and um, his name was Percy, and he was called uh, Mechanic Mechanicism Man, and <laughs> so it's 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 kind of an interesting story uh, about a robot, and this is really uh, from the 1910 era, so really much earlier than, uh, as I said, the coin term of robot, um, but it just sort of placed in the ideas of these kind of androids or, you know, uh, robotic people into uh, that age of uh, storytelling. So these early science fiction elements really brought on later science fiction elements. So it's kind of cool. Um, another one that he talked about is Buck Rogers. Uh, and that's a personal favorite of mine. I'm a big Buck Rogers fan. So <laughs> Buck Rogers... Again, um, what they would do in order to get into science fiction, the, the different way, like nowadays when we write science fiction stories, we'll write about Star Trek or um, Star Wars, and it'll just be set in that universe, right? But in terms of uh, the way uh, stories were written back in the Platinum Age, was they would write like Buck Rogers story where Buck Rogers would have this kind of Rip Van Winkle kind of element to him where he would fall asleep and then wake up in the future. <laughs> and the future would be this, you know, science fiction paradise, right? With robots and flying vehicles and all this kind of stuff. So this is in the 1920s that Buck Rogers was written. 
And it's just a very interesting way of seeing how to get into that future. So they, they wouldn't, uh, they would either have it in the dream world or they would, uh, have it where you would fall asleep and enter into the future, some kind of time machine kind of element to it. So I just thought that was interesting. And it's a really great article, but I just gave, I'm just giving a quick summary of the article just to give you a sense of some of the cool things that it really gets into in terms of this platinum age of storytelling, uh, where it was really the Sunday strips and, uh, just a really interesting time period. And we're talking really from 1902 really to early twenties. So just a very interesting time period. I hope you enjoyed this little quick <laughs> taste of Platinum Age of comic strips and sci-fi. And if you enjoy this kind of content, feel free to check me out on YouTube. I'm Comic Collector Geek, and uh, thanks again for listening. Hey, let's talk about the popular movies of 1980. I mean, when we reflect back on this year, there were a lot that stood the test of time. The Shining. Wow. Got a chance to rewatch that recently. It is, well, you want to talk about Bizarre? That was a strange one. Uh, still, there, there are still iconic lines and iconic scenes in that movie. Return of the King. Animated feature that dealt with the final part of The Lord of the Rings. Not a fan of it. I like the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings that came before that. The Rankin and Bass one was just totally bizarre. How about My Bodyguard? I saw that in the movie theater. My father, my brother, and I. Do you remember that movie? I saw it on TV. Fatso with Dom DeLuise. It's one of those ones that you look back at that and saying. Wow, Dom DeLuise can, was considered morbidly obese back in 1980? Well, I know a thousand people that are that size, and, and they're just normal function part of society. So uh standards have changed. Caddyshack, absolutely love that movie. Super Fuzz, another Hamden resident, town that I grew up in. I actually grew up two blocks away from the former home of Ernest Borgnine. Alligator. I remember watching that and being scared to go to the bathroom when I was a kid after watching that movie because I thought alligators would come out. So you used to watch horror movies back then? I wouldn't call Alligator a horror movie. Well, and, and The Shining, too. I mean, you watched those movies. I what? I did not watch Shining in the movie theater in 1980, no. When it came okay. on HBO, I did. The Fog, John Carpenter classic. This movie is a movie I have great disdain over just because I cannot understand why it's so popular. The Blues Brothers. Yeah, I liked it. No, I, I saw that one on TV. Me too. I saw it as a kid. I liked it when I was a kid. Once I got older, I really, I just don't get it. I'll leave it at that. I don't, I don't get the over fascination with it. That, that's what I don't understand. Well, because it had, um, what, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, and, and the thing is, I watched it with a Saturday Night Live fan. The thing is, Saturday Night Live fans loved all of those movies that yes, those guys made. Yes. So that was the thing. I remember uh, being in Italy one time, went to a place that said American Bar, and I said, I want to see how do Italians view Americans. And it had these giant statues of the Blues Brothers above the bar. So it's like, <laughs> wow, that's 
what foreigners think that's the total American experience. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, but Carrie Fisher was in the movie, too. Exactly. That was a shining star. I remember my mother saying, hey, kids, this is the part where Princess Leia comes up. Me and my brother running in the room saying, oh, man, this is awesome. <laughs> Hollywood Nights. Loved that movie as a kid. Death Watch. Somewhere in Time. I mean... Nicholas Meyer, Christopher Reeves, Jane Seymour. Yeah, that was a great movie. Now that that one I did see in a theater, and uh, I just loved it. It was a just the perfect romantic movie, and Christopher Reeve was, uh, you know, riding the trail of Superman at the time. Nude Bomb, total stinker. Uh, I that's another one I saw on TV back then, and and I liked it back then as a child. But yeah, we, we tried watching it recently. Yeah, and didn't really like it. It was hard to get through. <laughs> Battle Beyond the Stars. Oh, another one that I, okay, I saw that one in theaters and liked it as a kid. But when we just rewatched it, we couldn't watch it. <laughs> Popeye. Yeah, I saw that one in a theater because um, you know, this was right after uh, Mork and Mindy. So Robin Williams doing Popeye. I mean. Yeah, I thought it was great. I loved the movie back then, and, and, and I had the soundtrack. I loved the soundtrack for that one. The Gods Must Be Crazy. I remember this kid down the street, Sal. He loved this movie. He just thought it was so funny. Smokey and the Bandit 2. Yeah, I saw that one in the theater uh, with my aunt. Um, I had an aunt who was really like, she was like my grandmother, and she loved um, Burt Reynolds. So she took me to see that one and, and the first one. Flash Gordon. Obviously iconic. Xanadu. Yeah. Now, now actually, my, my aunt took me to see that one, too. And we thought it was great. Yeah. Uh, um, musical. Oh, and of course, I had the soundtrack. And that was one of those where the soundtrack made much more money than the movie. And, the movie um, was a bomb, but the yeah, soundtrack yeah. was huge because Olivia Newton-John was a ginormous celebrity at that time. The, the, it was. She made this after Greece. And, mm-hmm. um, but I love that the movie had all the special effects too, and because it was about the Greek gods, which I love. So yeah, it had a, it had a lot of stuff going for it, really. Saturn three. Didn't see it back then. We just saw it a few months ago, and not very good. <laughs> Any which way you can. Yeah, I remember seeing that, and my my dad was a big uh, Clint Eastwood fan, so he loved it. It was kind of I think it was too mature for me. We just watched Watcher in the Woods, with Betty Davis. Weird Disney movie. Oh, yeah. Quasi horror. It was, yeah, that was okay. But it was, yeah, it was uh, like a little too Disney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was their attempts at branching out, doing something different. Airplane. Wonderful movie. Amazing. You watch that movie now and it's funnier than ever. It is so funny now because recently I'm seeing on Facebook people are making memes like using uh, pictures from Star Trek with quotes from that movie, and it's hilarious. <laughs> they can never make a movie like that nowadays. <laughs> fame? Yeah, fame was great. Actually, that now that one I didn't even see in theaters either. Well, it, it was rated R, and um, yeah, somehow I but I I didn't get to see it when it came out. And um, but when they made the TV series based on it, I mean, I loved that TV series, and then I saw the movie later. Cheech and Chong's next movie. That was one of the things my brother and I would watch these Cheech and Chong movies, and we didn't have any drug knowledge or background. We didn't understand all this was a drug-induced movie. We just thought these guys were hysterical, though. 
Yeah, I don't think those movies came to my hometown, <laughs> but um, they they were on Showtime and mm-hmm. and I we know, watch on Showtime. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's how. I mean, I I kind of caught glimpses of them, but I didn't really get it either. And my, I, but I know my big brother; he loved those Cheech and Chong movies. Stir crazy. Yeah, um, I saw that on TV again, and we just watched it recently. You know, you will never have comedy like that anymore. Richard Pryor really made some good movies back then. He was a comic genius. You can say Mm -hmm. that. Friday the 13th. Who would figure that this would create a horror phenomenon? Altered States? Watch this a lot on Showtime. Another weird one. The Gambler with Kenny Rogers. Remember how popular that song was? Yeah. I, I I know the song. Yeah. I didn't see the movie. Speaking of songs from soundtracks with a country music tie-in, Dolly Parton, Lily Tomlin, Nine to Five, fantastic, oh, yeah. wasn't it? Oh, I loved it. I saw I saw that one in a theater, and then when it was on Showtime, I watched it every time it came on Showtime. And yeah. my father said something like, "Boy, they sure show that movie a lot." <laughs> we watched it a lot. I remember my brother saw it at the movie theater, but I had a bad report card, and that was part of my punishment. I had to stay home alone and do extra homework, and my whole family came back laughing and giggling and smiling and me and my miserable self had to wait till it was on showtime oh the elephant man yeah that was good we just watched it recently wow moving extremely moving i remember crying when i saw it on hbo my and then my mother holding me saying this just shows we should never make fun of people that are different and you know it's still that moment still sticks with me today what yeah, a powerful the movie, movie. Was, yeah, it was, it was so good at making that point. The Jazz Singer. We just saw that recently. I, I would watch this as a kid because I'm a huge Neil Diamond fan. What an incredible soundtrack this movie had. Yeah, a lot of great songs in it. And the big blockbuster, The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, I saw that when it came out. And, and I saw that one before I saw Star Wars. And still liked it. I thought it was a great movie. It's our convention wrap-up. We just got back from the London Film and Comic-Con. Wow. A, a question that came up and to from one of our listeners is, how would you describe the difference between a comic convention in London compared to a comic convention in the United States? And going into it, I figure it would be kind of the same, but there were some glaring differences. Um, one thing was that they make you pay for for some of the panels. Instead of having all the panels free. To us, it's just so odd. Pay per panel? Yeah, about approximately $20 for, for a panel. For, for certain ones, the ones that had the biggest stars. The big difference, I'd say, is the obsession with Stranger Things. I was going in there thinking Doctor Who would be a big deal. All these British iconic features that, that we love as Americans. But what was the deal with Stranger Things' obsession? In this case, probably because the fourth season had just been released, and and there were there were people there were actors from the show that were at the con, so yeah, just because it, it's current. But um, yeah, I mean it's it's not a British-made show, so that's why we were expecting more like Doctor Who fans there. And um, but it turned out the the biggest guest, the most popular one there, was Joseph Quinn from Stranger Things, and he. He he was just added for the fourth season that was just released. And, and it was and, a mob scene. 
Well, this was his first con, so his first appearance at a con. Holy so, cow! Wow. It was crazy. So it must have been like, yeah, like he's the teen heartthrob of the of the show. Yeah, yeah. And in real life, he looks nothing like the character. Yeah, which was funny too. The amount of kids walking around with Rodney Dame's Geo Dio back patches on their jackets was just like, where are you even getting all these back patches? <laughs> And then the people wearing Stranger Things t-shirts that they bought there at the con. They were practically printing money, the people that were selling the Hellfire baseball shirts. Yeah, we saw a lot of those, yeah. But there was Doctor Who alumni there, and they get the characters and the actors that we don't see as often. I think that was the, the biggest deal for us, to see people in the Star Wars universe, the Doctor Who universe... All these fantastic British actors that you only see him here every once in a while or maybe, of course, this is their home turf. So it's massive concentration of those. And like they had a dealer's room. The vendor's room was really about twice the size that we're used to at, at Comic-Cons. Yeah. Yeah, I was able to get, I was absolutely ecstatic to uh, find UK Star Wars comic books. Of course, you could buy anything online, but we're trying to buy as much as we can in real life. Very tactical. I want to have that experience of buying something not online, but in real life. And so that was a high point for me, seeing vintage Star Wars things from the UK, especially seeing things from, from Palatoy. Things that are just unique there. The tri-logo cards in the Star Wars world. Things that are just so different from the United States. And the fact that because their public transportation is so awesome, there's what they call the tube drops you off right there in front of the convention center. Very few facilities in the United States have that. Yeah, that was nice being uh, being able to uh, take the tube right there, right to where the con was. Um, and also, they, they had a big Star Wars area in the vendor's room. They called it the Star Wars Zone, which was pretty neat. And we got to meet some people that we know on Facebook that we had never met in person. Exactly. That, without a doubt, going to London was one of the high points, is one of our, two of our contributors on the show, we got to meet in real life. Mark Newbold, who handles Star Wars news in the UK, he said he loves being on the show and he wants to continue contributing on future episodes. And we had one Facebook friend that drove three hours to meet us. And when you hear that, it's just mind-blowing we're we're amazed that people in the uk know about us but even go through lengths to see us in real life shane pool is amazing and we look forward to hearing him on future episodes because he loves contributing it was great to meet him and we had a lot of fun yeah the the uk fans have just such a unique passion in fact i asked a few questions during two doctor who panels at the convention the first panel featured Peter Purvis and Maureen O'Brien, who played companions to the first Doctor, that being Stephen and Vicky. The second panel had Colin Baker, who portrayed the sixth Doctor, as well as Sophie Aldred and Janet Fielding, who played Ace and Tegan. Let me adjust the dials on the TARDIS to bring you back in time so you could hear the questions that I asked them. At what point at what point did you realize that Doctor Who became an international phenomena and how did that affect your view of the show? 
I don't know that I was ever aware, really. <laughs> um, but what really changed my view of the show was the 50th anniversary. Um, at that huge, the place that became a Nightingale Hospital, you know. Down Excel. Yeah. Um, thousands and thousands and thousands of people, whole families, four, five generations sometimes of families, who came and queued for autographs. And um, there would be the granddad, and then the, uh, his son, and then his son, and then his son. All of you know. I say son advisedly because there are a few females here today, but there never used to be any, I promise you. It was a male phenomenon, the Doctor Who fandom. Um, but I became aware for the first time that this was something enormous. And, um, and the only reason we were there, really, was because the 16 years, I think it was, when the BBC had cancelled it, the fans never gave up. They never gave up. You never gave up. Um, you just fought on and on and on, never let it be forgotten, never let it go away, and eventually it was brought back in this new metamorphosis, you know, it's completely different. Um, so I don't think I was aware of it being international exactly, but I was aware of it being a British, incredible kind of British institution that um, that had developed and developed and developed and was going on developing into a new kind of life. And um, I just thought, yeah, well, respect, man. I really, you know, I, I, was, I just thought it was fantastic. And since then, I've had the most enormous respect for it. Um, uh, to a certain extent, I agree with you, but I think I, I certainly was aware there was something happening uh, when the film was made with Paul McGann. Uh, and around that time, I seem to remember I went to my first Doctor Who convention, and that was up in Manchester. Uh, and I, thought, I didn't realise, in fact, to be honest, I had virtually forgotten about Doctor Who. I only really came to realise that there was something in the, in the air when Mark Ayres came to me and asked me if I would do the commentaries for the audios, all of which existed, of the episodes that I had done, most of which were missing. There still are 29 missing, only 17 of mine exist. And I literally had forgotten that. When we started doing the recordings and I was adding commentary to cover the visuals that were missing, I began to remember Doctor Who. And I began to remember, I didn't even remember the, 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 the stories, I didn't remember the order they came, I didn't remember the detail of what happened. So most of my memories of actually performing on the show are borrowed from somewhere slightly else. But I was aware that there was something happening. And when it regenerated itself in 2003, the American interest in it was obvious. And that was the point I thought, wow. This is far bigger than we would have ever considered. I, I, I seem to remember feeling when it came off in 1989, I think it was. Uh, I reckon, I saw a few episodes, and my son was working as a, as a runner on it at that time, with uh, Sophie Eldred and Sylvester. But it was 
one of those things where I thought, I think the show's had its time, and of course it did come on. Um, not missed by me, because my memory wasn't really there. It came back later. Uh, and now, of course, the success that it has, I know this is coming on, so there's lots of other elements involved, but the Doctor Who element is very strong in creating something like this. And uh, I, I think it is quite phenomenal. I have massive respect for the show. I have massive respect for the people working on it today. Much as I am not particularly fond of it being technologically clever, I don't think the stories are as good, but that's another thing. I love the idea, when I think back now, of working as a weekly repertory company, producing one episode a week with a cliffhanger at the end of each one, that to me was the ideal. And for me, there is only one doctor, and that's Bill. How would you compare fandom from decades ago to Doctor Who fandom today? Maybe it's a little lovelier every year. <laughs> That's my answer. You old smoothie. <laughs> yeah. What's lovely is actually, I've, what I've noticed since the late 80s is that there are many more women, and young women in particular, in fandom, yeah. which, which I think is fantastic. And it shows that the, um, the, sh that the shows that are being produced are, are now... Um, as they should be, they're not male-centric, exactly. Yeah. So that's something I've noticed. And also, what's also so lovely is that um, parents, who are, the, who are the older parents here, who have you brilliantly indoctrinated... Yes. Educated. And parented in a wonderful way and educated exactly your children and sometimes even your children's children... So we've got this wonderful generational um, family groups who are all watching yeah. Doctor Who and other science fiction. I, I think certainly in the UK that fandom is kinder than it was here, in the ages. Here. Here, it was often it could get quite clicky and possessive and possessive yeah. in the eighties, and I'm shocked by that. And it was like, who do you think you are coming into Doctor Who, my program? <laughs> but now it's just, it's like more of a family and, yeah, it's, it's friendlier. As you say, there's a lot more women, so, which always improves things. I agree. <laughs> so, yeah. Open your mind to Dungeons & Dragons computer game from Mattel Electronics. It will lead your imagination down a dungeon labyrinth wherein lies the dragon's treasure. Steal his treasure, but make no false moves. For in Dungeons & Dragons, a dead end is a dead end. Dungeons & Dragons from Mattel Electronics. Starlog Magazine, issue number 42, January 
1981. Communications, Letters to Starlog Magazine Passing the Buck Philip Fung from New Plainfield, New Jersey writes, Isn't it ironic how in Starlog 38, Tim O'Connor stated how much he enjoyed doing Buck Rogers? And in issue number 39 is axed by the new producer. Some of John Mantley's new ideas seem promising, but I was disappointed by the loss of O'Connor and Mel Blank. Well, I mean, yeah, so many people complain about that, and I didn't like it either, how, how Buck Rogers changed so much from the first season to the second season. It's amazing when you watch that introductory episode to the second season that they didn't even ease into changes. They it didn't was, explain it. It was yeah. just a hard, in-your-face, and you're... It's almost abrupt when you're watching it. When when the second season came on, it, it even came on late because there was a writer strike, so the show had been delayed. And then I finally see the previews on TV that Buck Rogers is coming back, and I'm like, oh yes, I was wondering if it was even coming back, you know. And then it comes on, and it's like, oh, what happened? Everything's so different now. I mean, yeah, they could have. It seems like they could have done a transition to show uh, why why they're not going to have Doctor Hewer anymore and Doctor Theopolis. Yeah, and like, why did Tweaky's voice change? Exactly, exactly. It was, it's so strange, especially during that era. Remember, we had no internet. Starlog was our internet. And because of publishing, Starlog, it would be three months late. So we'll be reporting on things after the effect. It, wow, what a difficult time for Buck Rogers fans. It, it was a hard pill to swallow, yeah. Log Entries, Latest News from the Worlds of Science Fiction and Fact Vader in Flames The official Star Wars fan club has released its first exclusive offer to its members, a replica of the cast and crew patch from The Empire Strikes Back, embroidered in seven colors, the Vader in Flames logo, was designed by, by Ralph McQuarrie, and worn on the ski parkas of those involved with the Finns, Norway, Ice Planet Hoth location shoot. Okay, so that's a nice patch. So, it, so yeah, this is the official fan club, and they have their patch designed by a professional. And it goes on to say that this patch is a complicated design because of the multiple colors. A normal patch can be manufactured at a thousand units per three or four hours, but this one took 13 hours per a thousand. Patches are available only to fan club members, $3 plus 50 cents postage and handling, and have been produced in small quantities and are not sold through retail or wholesale outlets. And if you'd like to join the official Star Wars fan club, you can by sending a self-addressed stamped envelope for your membership application. Ah, the era of self-addressed stamp envelopes, SASEs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a big thing. I had, I mean, it took me a while to figure out what that was in Starlog, trying to figure out, okay, they want an SASE. Uh, so, but this patch, so was this the beginning of the Star Wars patch trading? I, I mean, you could look at that, and the original patches do go for some serious money. I mean, our, our contributor in this issue, Ken Tarleton, is going to explain more about it, about patch collecting and 
I mean, this guy's amazing, the patch collection that he has in the thousands, and his focus is Star Wars. But it's one of the fun things at, at conventions, especially Star Wars conventions and at Dragon Con, is, is patch trading. And we can see these are the early days of Star Wars patch collecting. And, ha- even, and how how different it was back then that a seven color patch was a big deal. Yeah, and even with with this one, so it's only um, available to fan members, but they still have to pay for it. Yeah. So they're still, you know, shelling out a little bit of money for that. Well, good news for our Star Log listeners: we do have a limited edition Star Pod Log patch. It says Star Wars, Star Pod Log. You can see it on the picture that's associated with this episode. And just like in 1980, we're going to offer this to our listeners for only $3. Send a self-addressed stamped envelope to the address in the show notes, and we'd be happy to send it to you. So if you're a patch collector, a Star Wars collector, a Starlog fan, you definitely want this limited edition Starpod Log patch. Hello, this is Ken Tarleton. Hey, I'm better known as the Elvis Trooper. If you've been to San Diego Comic-Con and Star Wars Celebrations in the past, uh, you might have seen me back in the day. Uh, but these days, I uh, am known for collecting Star Wars patches, as I seem to have the largest collection in the world, uh, from what I've seen. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, an article in Starlog, Starlog 42. Uh, the article is The Thinking Cap, or Where Can I Get a Patch Like That? The article talks about a uh, company I know from collecting vintage patches that talks about the Think Cap Company. Um, which was a really good company for making patches and hats of movies and shows like that back in the day. Um, so I read through the article again and it talks about what they started with. Uh, one of their big things was Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, working with Spielberg, uh, which was great. And I think I have one of those patches. They made crew patches and they made caps and then they made officially licensed merchandise like the uh, Star Wars stuff um, that I have a number of they from my collecting uh, of vintage patches I know I should have most of what they put out in the uh, 80s Um, so I wanted to relate um, collecting talk about collecting those patches which are a little harder to find these days um Back when I started collecting patches a good maybe 20 years ago, they were more prevalent to find. Uh, A little harder these days, maybe, with just searching eBay and stuff like that. Um, Or being able to know someone who has a couple extras for trade and such like that. So, getting into collecting Star Wars patches, it is a lot different these days because uh, this article talks about a lot of licensed uh, patches from this company and at the time there was um, this Think Geek company doing licensed patches and then there was also the Star Wars fan club uh, doing patches and that was about it. There was maybe one other one or there were bootlegs at the time as well. Because we're talking the uh, 70s and 80s. 
um, which the bootlegs are also great to find um, when you can find find those as well. So at back in uh, back when I started collecting patches, it wasn't that hard to kind of have a list of what to look for. You knew what was out there, and you could search and find um, the vintage patches or know what vintage patches you could find. But these days, there are so many different Star Wars patches from uh, fan-made patches to different companies that just uh, do one-off patches uh, that aren't licensed, and there's a lot of different ways they get around that. Uh, so there's a lot more, there's a lot more patches out there to collect these days that are way away from your licensed patches. Now your licensed patches are still out there because we're talking, uh, like Star Wars Celebration, you know, each time we have that, uh, we'll always have a number of patches. And then there's a couple other good companies out there that are doing licensed patches, and I relate uh, a new company that's doing uh, patches and caps is a company called Heroes and Villains. And they do a lot of uh, different licensees, uh, but one of their main ones is Star Wars. And just like the uh, ThinkGeek company, they do a lot of uh, ball caps with uh, their exclusive patches on it. Plus they'll sell... Um, little packets of patches that are themed to uh, a specific character and such. So I relate that's one of the newer companies that's out right now that relates back to uh, this older company that uh, Starlog had interviewed in uh, this article. Uh, so what else can I tell you? Um, there are, as far as collecting patches, uh, like I stated, there's a really a small number of licensed patches that are out there but um you can go off in tangents on star wars patches because you have all the clubs are doing patches so you've got uh say one of the biggest costume clubs the 501st legion which i'm also in and the rebel legion so each of those uh clubs will do you know, so many different patches for their main groups or their garrisons or their events. And the Rebel Legion will do a little bit about the same, but not as much as the 501st. And then there's also a number of other smaller groups that will always do a, a patch, um, you know, maybe once a year or something for their clubs. Now, a lot of these clubs are also are actually recognized by Lucasfilm. And they are allowed to make them under, you know, under certain rules that we go by for the clubs that are recognized. So they're not officially licensed patches, let's say, but they are recognized patches that we're allowed to make as long as we put like a copyright LFL on them. Um, now, that's still like a small number of patches that are that have even that copyright on them but there are still a number of other personal patches that people make i i'm included in that myself uh that i'll make for each celebration i'll make a different um old elvis trooper patch or i'll make i've gotten into also a lot of uh, tiki as well so i've got kind of an elvis trooper tiki patch 
that I make for each celebration that I hand out and trade. So the biggest events are now Star Wars Celebration for trading patches, which has blown up over the years as we've had more celebrations come and go. Um, but, you know, I can walk away with buying, you know, I'll buy myself, you know, let's say 300 personal patches to trade out. Uh, so each of those comes back and I'll run out usually during the con, which means I'm getting, I'm bringing back about 300 or more of somebody else's personal patches or club patches or group patches and so many other different ones that, uh, it's gotten really insane. Um, there's just so much out there now. Uh, not like the old days when there was only a certain number and most of those were all licensed. Um, so that is a little bit about collecting patches. But, you know, one other thing I was reading through this Starlog 42 and I noticed a, uh, another article that really caught my attention back, um, on page 10. Actually, it's under the, uh, log entries and it talks about the, uh, Vader and Flames patch. Uh, which is actually, and that was produced by the official Star Wars fan club. So actually I wanted to take a, uh, maybe a second little tidbit on another article here in this star log about this, uh, Vader and Flames patch. It was, that's, that was officially licensed or officially offered by the fan club at the time. And they even give a, uh, like a whole address and how much you can send away, uh, in this star log. At the time, it was $3 plus 50 cents postage and handling uh, for this amazing patch. Um, and the reason I wanted to talk about this, because that artwork by Ralph McQuarrie uh, is actually one of my favorite all-time patches and all-time um, art by him as well that was used. And there's been so many different uh, variations over the years of this patch. The one that the official fan club offered was an amazing patch in itself, uh, but it was, let's say, about a third size smaller than the actual crew patch that the, uh, that the actual, you know, filming on set crew used, uh, which was a really amazing patch, and I've been lucky to, um, be able to find a couple of the original crew patches as well over the years of collecting, and, then they've used this Vader and Flames uh, a number of times, either through people have used it through personal patches or different clubs. Even this last celebration um, this year, the R2 Builders Club used that uh, Vader and Flames concept, and they put like a, uh, I think it was a probe droid uh, in the flames instead of Vader the Vader helmet. Uh, but the fan club has reissued that, and the, that one isn't too hard to find. It can be found on eBay, because um, they reissued it over the years. Even when Return of the Jedi came out, they offered a three-pack of the uh, A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Jedi patches together at that time. But anyways, um, that is about it for me. Just going over a couple little things about collecting Star Wars patches. And how it relates to uh, the new days versus the old days. But again, my name is uh, Ken Tarleton, also known as the Elvis Trooper. You can find me on Instagram, uh, just under the title Elvis Trooper. I uh, post uh, my patch collecting. 
I do a weekly Friday mail call where I post uh, whatever I've found and whatever's come in the mail that week. So come on by and check me out. All right. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Gary. And this is Joe. And we're from the American Sci-Fi Classics Track. Don't forget to check out our track room in the basement of the Marriott while you're at DragonCon on Labor Day weekend. And in the meantime, get ready for more exciting programming from Starpod Log. They have the awesome stuff. All, only the awesome stuff. Neil Norman's Cosmic Orchestra. So, in this issue of Starlog Magazine, there is a floppy 33.5 record. It's the size of a, a smaller 45 record. It's samples of the greatest science fiction themes by Neil Norman and his Cosmic Orchestra. So what you did was you took this floppy, I mean, it's it's when I say it's floppy, it's like a thin piece of plastic that you can tell it's a record. You'd cut it out of the magazine, and there's a little spot to put a quarter on it. You'd put the coin on that, and you'd play it on your record player. And Neil Norman was known for doing his own versions of classic superhero, science fiction, and fantasy themes. And what a great idea to include this bonus record in Starlog. Yeah, I remember those bonus records being like in Mad Magazine, getting those records too. Uh, but but this is neat, yeah, having one with classical music. So And it's basically free, it just comes with the Starlog. Yeah, I remember cutting out a Honeycomb's box and, and having a record on that too. So if our listeners would like to hear some of the music on there, as well as full uh, songs, or I should say uh, tracks from this album, just click, look at the link below in the show notes, and it will link to our YouTube page, where we do have Neil Norman's Cosmic Orchestra. Hi, my name is Billy Hogan, host of the Superman Fan Podcast, and I'm covering the article Science Fiction and the Comics Part 2, The 30s Boom Time for Science Fiction Heroes, written by Ron Goulart, and this article could be found on pages 32 through 35. The article writer Ron Goulart noted that Part 1 of the article in last issue was on the pioneer science fiction comic strip Buck Rogers, which was created by writer Phil Nolan and original artist Dick Calkins, which premiered in January of 1929. And, of course, like in all things in entertainment, it inspired a host of imitations. Probably one of the most famous science fiction comic strips inspired by Buck Rogers was Flash Gordon, this strip premiered on January 7th, 1938. The strip began with the end of the world seeming to be imminent because of a planetary body that was approaching on a collision course to Earth. Flash Gordon and Dale Arden were passengers on a plane that happened to be struck by an asteroid, but somehow they were able to parachute from the damaged aircraft and landed in the backyard of a Professor Hans Zarkov, who was trying to save Earth from the catastrophe. He just happened to own a rocket and convinced the pair to join him on a comet-busting mission. They happened to land on the planet Mongo, which was ruled by the Emperor Ming, 
and this comic strip still survives today. The newspaper Brooklyn Eagle introduced a science fiction comic strip, Don Dixon, in the mid-1930s. It was a Sunday-only feature, written by Bob Moore and drawn by Carl Pfeiffer. It was basically an imitation of Flash Gordon, with a Dr. Lugoff as a duplicate of Flash Gordon's Professor Zarkov, and Don had a series of sword and sorcery adventures, which took place in the Hidden Empire, an amalgam of Mongo and Pellucidar, and his girlfriend was named Princess Wanda. The John F. Dill Syndicate took the book When Worlds Collide, written by Edwin Balmer and Philip Wiley, who himself also wrote the book Gladiator, which turned out to be one of the inspirations for Siegel and Schuster's comic book character Superman, to create a science fiction adventure strip called Speed Spaulding, who was not a character in the original novel. He met Professor Bronson, who was first aware of the twin planets that were on a collision course with Earth, as Speed and Bronson escaped Earth's destruction on a rocket equipped with atomic engines, and Earth is destroyed in the final panel of the final strip. The article does a great job of chronicling some of the science fiction adventures inspired by Buck Rogers, much like Superman himself inspired a world of superheroes from many comic book companies looking to cash in on the new superhero craze of the late 1930s and early 1940s. Among the inspirations for The Man of Steel were these earlier comic strip and pulp era science fiction and adventure heroes, his origin as an orphan from the planet Krypton who arrives on Earth on a rocket, certainly is inspired by the science fiction heroes of the 20s and 30s, heroes like Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon or even Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter of Mars. Superman creators... Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster were also inspired by various adventure characters who were strong or had almost superhuman abilities, like the pulp-era hero Doc Savage, who was a peak of human development both mentally and physically, or the hero of Philip Wiley's novel Gladiator, a science fiction character given superhuman abilities because of a super serum injected into his mother, who gives birth to a son who has superhuman strength, speed, and is also bulletproof. Comic book historians have alleged that Wiley thought that Siegel and Schuster ripped off his character to create Superman. What set Superman apart and created the entire genre of superheroes is that Siegel and Schuster took all these characteristics of the adventure heroes, the intellect, the strength, the almost superhuman abilities along with the science fiction trope of space travel, and rolled them all into a brightly garbed character whose costume itself was inspired by the circus strongmen of the era, hence the trunks being worn outside the costume. While the Man of Steel's original powers and abilities were humble comparing to his later superpowers, no flight, but he could leap an eighth of a mile, he had superhuman strength and nothing less than a bursting shell could penetrate a skin, 
Yet Siegel and Schuster imbued their creation with energy and action unlike any other action character of the time. Plus, I think Superman, like most Americans, came from somewhere else, so he's the ultimate immigrant in that he brings his unique heritage into this literal new world and absorbs the American values of truth and justice, quickly becoming the champion of the weak and oppressed, which quickly became his moniker long before truth, justice, and the American way. Plus, he gave readers hope at a scary time as World War II was just around the corner. You can find my podcast, the Superman Fan Podcast, at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com or most podcast hosting sites. I hope to post new episodes soon so I can continue exploring the Silver Age adventures of the Man of Steel. Hello, this is Paul Mount from the UK with another Doctor Who related report from the archive of Starlog magazine. This episode, I'm delving back to January 1981, issue 42 of Starlog, which contains an interesting and quite poignant interview with two of the best-remembered members of the cast from Doctor Who in the 1970s. We're talking about the legendary Elizabeth Sladen, who played Sarah Jane Smith, and Ian Marta, who played Harry Sullivan in the first year or so of Tom Baker's reign as the Doctor. This is an interesting interview, which... um, I've just read, and a little peek behind the curtain, when I record these pieces for you, I don't have any script, I don't really have anything prepared, I just read the piece, jot down a few little notes, little points that I want to talk about, and they tend to be from my perspective as um, an an elder statesman of Doctor Who fandom, if you like, somebody who was there at the time, and uh, I think when I saw this piece again, I, I actually remember owning this magazine and reading this interview before, uh, and it, it's it's hugely nostalgic, and, and it, it's a real nostalgia fix if you like to look back and read this again now particularly when both of these artists so beloved in the world of Doctor Who especially Elizabeth Sladen who's sort of the acme of Doctor Who companions I think that's a phrase that David Tennant used to describe her when she passed away in 2011 but these interviews were conducted at a time when these actors were no longer in Doctor Who Doctor Who was just making its its name in America it was being shown I believe on the public service stations and was it attracting a bit of attention and, and a lot of fan attention at conventions. And this particular interview, I believe, it took place in a convention in March 1980. It was printed then in January 1981. And reading it now, it's it's very sweet because it's before the, the big explosion of, of Doctor Who fandom, which occurred later on in the 80s as Doctor Who became oddly more popular in America and slightly less popular in Britain. And, of course, now when Doctor Who fandom is, is a huge online monster, I, I feel... <laughs> Many times you read some of the things online which you really wish you hadn't read. Doctor Who fandom has changed in many ways, but it's it's nice to look back at, into the mists of time, back in more innocent times when Doctor Who stars past would travel across to America. Because as I said, when when this interview took place, they'd both been out of Doctor Who for, or certainly Elizabeth had been out for three years, and Ian had been out for four or five years. And I'm reading the interview now. It's 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 very nice that they're both slightly overwhelmed by the attention that they're getting from the fans in America, that they've been even asked to go to Hollywood, which is a big thing for British actors. British actors, certainly at that time, 
were very much jobbing performers who worked on television programmes and plays and films. And then they would move on to the next one. The cult of Doctor Who means that people have this afterlife and they're in demand in other places, sometimes not necessarily professionally, but sometimes to meet their fans all over the world. And that's certainly true these days. But back then, these were the early days of that sort of, you know, worldwide travel to, to people to show their appreciation of the show. And you can see that in, in the comments that uh, Elizabeth Annie and make talking about how they were slightly overwhelmed by the fact that their hosts and the fans at the convention were not just dressing up in costumes, which is obviously a cosplay thing, which has really exploded since then, but were asking them detailed questions about their time on the show and quoting back lines of dialogue. And um, as Elizabeth says at one point, uh, she was apprehensive about going to the convention because she felt, am I going to remember? I was nervous too because I didn't want to let down all the people who worked so hard at this convention. Um, and I think it shows particularly, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll hold up my hand here and say that I'm a huge fan of Elizabeth Slade. And I think she's certainly the best supporting companion character Doctor Who's ever had, uh, classic series and modern era. Uh, something about her wide-eyed, warm portrayal of, of Sarah Jane Smith, this feisty journalist um, who went on to have such an enormous afterlife in Doctor Who. And again, reading this interview now, it's so poignant because at that time she'd left Doctor Who. Uh, there was so much to come for her. Um, I think this was uh, a few months actually before K-9 and Company, the first Doctor Who spin-off, was mooted and filmed later in 1981. And uh, of course, she then returned to Doctor Who in the 21st century and had her own series. Um, and it's interesting to read all this now. She's talking about the character in the past, about work she did in the past and trying to remember it. But I think even here we see the integrity of her of an actress, actress that she, you know, I really gave it all I had, she says at one point. We had fun and laughs, but I cared desperately that it'd be right because you're on show to so many people. It was difficult to be in because you don't really have the ammunition as an actor to cover yourself as you might in a different kind of play. You had to draw very much on your own character because you were so close to otherwise having no character. I was allowed, therefore, to put a lot of me into it. And I've read a lot of articles and features which have indicated that Elizabeth Staden was so very proprietorial about the character of Sarah Jane. When she came back to the show in 2006, she was very apprehensive. She didn't just want to be shoehorned in as a cameo because... She she did, she created the character. The character was very important to her. It was the character that she was best known for. And I always think, and I've always thought that it's one of the great tragedies of British entertainment and British television that Elizabeth Sladen didn't leave Doctor Who and to become a leading light on film and TV. And she should be up there with the Judy Denches and Helen Mirrens as one of the great elder statesmen of, of the British acting profession. But that didn't happen for various reasons, mainly because she wanted to spend time with her family her husband Brian, her daughter Sadie, they were important, more important to her. But I am glad that later on in her career she had that sort of renaissance in the Doctor Who world. And it, it sort of squared a circle, I suppose, as she came back and was so successful. Um, Elizabeth passed away in April 2011. I remember it very well, hearing the news and being shocked. I'd heard that she was ill because they were halfway through filming the fifth series of the Sarah Jane Adventures children's series, which I, as an old man, enjoyed very much. Um, and I was devastated when I heard she'd passed away. I mean, it was it was quite a shock because she was one of those people who, as people always said, watching her on Sarah Jane Adventures, when she came back to Doctor Who, she just didn't seem to age. She was genuinely ageless and timeless. And this interview just brings back so many memories. At the time when this interview was done, she was 35. She was still very young. 
stuff fresh from Doctor Who and it's interesting to see that then as later on in her life she cared so much about the character and forged this bond with Tom Baker and Ian Martyr at a time when Doctor Who was in transition and it's just another reminder of what a unique presence and personality that she was. Uh, similarly, Ian Martyr, he had a much shorter life in Doctor Who. He mentions in the article how he was cast a couple of years before in um, Carnival of Monsters as uh, one of the uh, the crew on board the ship that the TARDIS materialises in, in one of John Pertwee's, uh, I think it was John Pertwee's penultimate season. And that role led to him being cast in a similar role then as uh, Harry Sullivan when Tom Baker took over. I believe he was cast before Tom Baker was because the producers didn't know if the Doctor was going to be an older man, not capable of doing stunts and action scenes. So they cast somebody a bit younger. And I know that when he was phased out a year or so later, Philip Hinchcliffe, who became the producer, admitted that it was one of his mistakes was getting rid of Harry because there was this fantastic chemistry. If you watch season 12, where these three are together, Tom Baker, the fourth Doctor, at his best before he became too comical. Elizabeth Sladen, finding, really finding her feet now in year two with Sarah Jane. And Ian Martyr just slipping so easily into this pompous sort of public school boy, completely out of his depth, travelling with the Doctor and Sarah. It was just a beautiful combination. The repartee between the three of them was wonderful. And again, here, um, with the knowledge of hindsight that he only had a few years left to live, um, he, again, he's very, very proprietorial about the character and working with Liz. You can see the chemistry that he had and they had. Um, and the work they did in making those characters, which were just, you know, fairly bland characters on the page, made them more than they were. Ian Martyr, of course, famously went on to write a number of Doctor Who books. I think he was already writing them by the time this article was written. Um, and they were quite controversial because he wrote them as sort of more adult science fiction books. You know, there was swearing and, you know, violence. Um, he really sort of pushed the envelope. And I remember reading those books and thinking, yeah, much as I love Terence Dix's books, these are a different league in terms of being pieces of literature. Um, Ian Martyr passed away, as you probably know, uh, on 28th of October 1986 from a diabetic heart attack tragedy. He was only 42. Um, and it's a great loss. And reading this article just reminds me what a, how lucky Doctor Who was to have these two people on board, not just at the time they were on it, but afterwards, supporting the show, publicising the show, popularising the show. And, of course, in Elizabeth Sladen's case, returning to the show many years later. Um, it's a fascinating read. It's a nice time capsule of, a, of an early time in Doctor Who's history. Um, days that are now gone, I'm afraid, when Doctor Who's so public and everything's out there online. Um, but it's very nice to have a chance to look back um, and see these these two still quite young performers talking about an important time in their careers. close this issue by discussing one of the advertisements found in Starlog. This is on the inside back cover. An exclusive creation, the Starlog Watch. The pitch blackness of space surrounds that wonderful blue marble that is our home planet. The spectacular comet, its tail swirling majestically behind an azure fireball, perpetually orbits the Earth. Each tiny forward movement an accurate measure of the seconds in a minute. So we see that this watch has a black band and a gold tone case, and just as it describes, it's planet Earth with a comet that spins around with the logo of Starlog. 
I've never seen this in real life, but I look at it, and being a collector of all things Starlog, I've been having a hard time finding this. Have you ever seen this before in real life? No, I've never seen one. But, but I mean, it looks neat, though. That That design on there is pretty good. It really is. And you can reserve yours today. The Starlog watch is $50 plus $2 per watch postage and handling. So that's the reason they didn't sell many of them. That's why you hardly ever see them. You're not kidding. $50 for a watch? <laughs> yeah, that that was pretty high. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're right. This is why we don't see too many of them. And you don't see it too advertised too often. So obviously it was not a smash hit. But I would wear it with pride if I had one now. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu.